Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast, and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 44, and we have Brady Cannon joining the show. Brady is a golf handicapper based in Las Vegas and has been following and betting golf tournaments for many years. Brady is also the 2011 LVH NFL Super Contest champion. We chat handicapping a golf tournament, betting markets, and tips for recreational golf bettors to increase their chances of success. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with Brady Cannon. Today I'm joined by Brady Cannon. Brady, thank you very much for joining me. Absolutely, Jake. Good to be here. So, Brady, we're going to talk about betting on golf and how you handicap and bet golfing events from around the world. But before we get started on that, let's start with some background and information first. You are obviously involved in the business of golf. Um, so how many games of golf do you get to play every year? <laughs> Not very many anymore. I'm uh, too busy doing 100 different things. But uh, used to play once every uh, couple of weeks and uh, got down to a, a pretty good single-digit player. Uh, even won the uh, member guest championship at a country club I used to belong to. Uh, but since then, uh, you know, I've gotten busy and bu- busier and busier with, uh, you know, the golf business and the golf handicapping and all the other things that I'm doing, radio and all that stuff and having fun with it, but uh, less time spent on the course, unfortunately. So you run LV Tea Times, that's correct? Yes. Yeah, I work for a company called uh, Tea Times USA, and uh, our local, we, we do uh, Tea Times around the country and even internationally, but uh, our Las Vegas location and website is lvteatimes.com, yes. And I, it would be remiss of me not to mention the NFL season in 2011 when you were uh, the captain of San Suchi. Is that correct? Is if I got the pronunciation right there? Yeah, pretty close. San Suchi, which uh, in French means no problem. Oh. And so we thought that would be kind of a, a fun title. You know, no problem, no worries, what have you. Uh, technically, it means without worry, San Suchi. Um, we actually got that name from... Uh, we're all music fans, and that was uh, a sign above the door to the home of Jerry Garcia, the lead singer for the Grateful Dead at his home in Marin County near San Francisco. And uh, so we thought that would be uh, kind of a fun team name for us. And yeah, quite an NFL season it was. Uh, it turned out to be no problem in the end. <laughs> Do you remember what percentage? Uh, you guys got the record back then, right? We did. We had the highest record uh, ever at 72.5%. And at that time, there was the most uh, entries into the contest ever, which was 517. And it was right after that uh, that Jay Cornegay and myself, the uh, 
vice president of the race and sports book there at the Westgate, we put together a um, super contest kickoff weekend. And, you know, there have been certainly other factors and even bigger factors to the growth of the super contest. But I'd like to believe that the kickoff weekend has contributed to the popularity of the contest as well. Uh, I believe this August will be our seventh kickoff weekend now. And, you know, we're approaching a field of 3,000 now in the contest. And just, uh, uh, let's see, just seven years ago, uh, when we won it, we had a record number of 517. So quite a bit of growth, and uh, it's exciting to see. Wow. I guess that's a whole other episode or another podcast for the NFL. I want to talk <laughs> about golf today. So I guess, from your perspective, what's the very first thing that you'll start with when you sit down to handicap a golf tournament do you start with the actual tournament and the venue um or do you look at you know players first do you look at the betting market what's what's the very first thing you do uh the very first thing i do is i i basically set up my my grid of stats and you know my little number cruncher uh spreadsheet if you will and i go through, you know, what I believe are going to be the most important skill sets needed to, you know, have success at a particular venue. And I'll go back through my years past and, uh, you know, see what I thought was important in years past, whether it's, uh, you know, greens and regulation or scrambling or, you know, putting inside of 10 feet, you know, a number of different things that are important week to week, but some courses have particular um, characteristics that, uh, you know, place more importance on certain areas. And, you know, I think if a player performs well in those certain areas, that can separate them from the pack. Uh, so I'll go back and see what, what areas I looked at in uh, past years. And then, then I'll check, uh, you know, around some various websites and see what other people are talking about and see if there's maybe something I missed, if there's something new. Uh, maybe there's a tweak in the design. Maybe they changed the, uh, the the grasses and the greens or anything that might be different or maybe something else that, uh, you know, uh, appeared successful in the winter uh, the previous year. You know, if all of a sudden they were tremendous on all of the par fours or, or if there was a, a different statistic anyway uh, that maybe stood out uh, among the, the usual suspects, if you will. And, uh, you know, I'll kind of plug those uh you know, categories uh, into my spreadsheet and then just start looking at the field and, uh, you know, seeing who uh, excels in what areas. So how do you find or develop that specific information? Do you have to do it yourself or is there a place you can find that, you know, at Hilton Head, for example, there's a specific type of player who might need to be more sort of versatile and have a bit more finesse in their game or some of the, the longer hitting courses like Pebble or Bay Hill. How do you have all that you know, information before you sit down to handicap? I have it from years past when I've, you know, written articles and, you know, looked at handicapping certain golf courses in the past. So I, ha I have it all documented. And so, like I say, I'll go back to those and, and just reference, you know, the key areas uh, year in and year out. But then, you know, uh, after that, I'll look around and there's a number of different websites, maybe half a dozen different websites where you can kind of look at, you know, how people are previewing these golf tournaments and what they say are important. You can also just go back to the statistics from the, from the past few years or whatever, and look at, you know, what categories guys were excelling in. Like, you know, for instance, if you take a look at, uh, 
you know, the Honda Classic. Okay, let's go back a few weeks on the Florida swing here and look at the Honda Classic and look at the last few guys that have won it. Justin Thomas, Ricky Fowler, uh, Padraig Harrington, and, and go back and find half a dozen things that they were tops in the field in that particular week. And, you know, you can kind of base your your handicap from that and take those five, six, seven, eight skill sets where they led the field or they were in the top 10 in the field. Uh, obviously, you know, if they're doing well in those areas, um, you know, that indicates to you that, uh, you know, those are areas that uh, indicate success at that particular golf course. And, you know, some golf courses, uh, and, and you can find a lot of this just uh, even on like PGA Uh, you know, there's some guys that write some columns on there and stuff and they'll tell you, you know, last year at the Honda, you know, Ricky Fowler was uh, first in strokes gain putting or, or uh, Justin Thomas was number one in the field in scrambling. So, you know, you, you kind of have to use uh, some of your own instinct and some of your own knowledge and what you think is going to be important for the golf course. But as far as finding what ingredients it took to win the past handful of years, uh, that's readily available online. So tell me about weather. What impact does weather play when you're evaluating uh, a tournament? So whether it's, you know, in the middle of the desert in the U.S., whether it's St. Andrews, it might be a bit more windy or a bit a bit cooler. And, you know, if it's rained all week at a venue and the greens might be a bit softer, is weather a, a huge impact or is it a, a minor element that goes into the overall handicap? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, it, it can certainly be huge, but... It, it's difficult to base your handicap on weather necessarily because, you know, there are maybe a few players that you figure are going to be better better in certain conditions than others. But, you know, generally the, the field is all playing in those same conditions, whatever they are. So you kind of don't change, or at least I don't change my handicap significantly. Um, you know, one player is still going to do what he does traditionally over four days no matter what, really. Now, uh, you know, there are better players and certain ball flights and, you know, guys on the European tour are typically playing in more wet and rainy and windy events than uh, guys in the U.S. So, you know, there's certainly some adjustments in that regard that you have to make. There are guys that are better players in wind than others. Australians, uh, like you, Jake, typically play uh, very well in the wind because they grew up with that type of thing. Charlie Hoffman has talked about being uh, a very good player in the wind because uh, he played at UNLV in Las Vegas. And uh, here in the springtime in Las Vegas, we get a lot of wind. So Charlie's a player that had to had to figure out how to play in the wind. Ricky Fowler, they talk about as being a good player in the wind. Uh, Tom Watson, you know, unfortunately, he's uh, no longer really involved in too many handicaps anymore, but probably one of the greatest wind players ever. So uh, and then, you know, the other thing where it really comes into play is when you have a tournament where it's supposed to really blow or really rain or, or whatever it's going to do on a Thursday and a Friday. And then, then you look at the draw and who's going to catch the worst and the best of the weather. Now that's where it really, you know, becomes a big factor. But other than that, it's, you know, it, it's tough because you just kind of have to, you know, try and figure out, well, who's, who's good in, in these type of conditions. And, you know, that is, there's not really stats for that, if you will. Yeah. So tee times, tell me about that. Is that randomized, I guess, for the first two days of a tournament? We're talking about weather. If it's going to be blowing a gale in the afternoon, for example, and, and you're teeing off at the, the 8 a.m. tee off, 
are those types of things factored into the marketplace? Are they thought about? Obviously, I'm sure the professionals do, but just generally in uh, even head-to-head betting, which we'll hopefully talk about soon, if someone's teeing off at 9 a.m. and for some reason their you know opponent in a head-to-head betting market is, is midday, are those things fully understood, do you think? I don't think they always are because I, I've been able to take advantage of that on a few occasions. Um, you know, the head-to-head and the individual round matchups, um, those are usually done uh, with a player that is uh, playing against an, another player in that same pairing. So they're obviously going to be teeing off at the same time. But yeah, if you're looking at, uh, you know, a full tournament matchup over the course of the four rounds, and you've got one guy, like you say, that's teeing off at 8 a.m. and one guy that's teeing off at 1 p.m., there certainly may be a distinct advantage. And, you know, I think eventually you see the price catch up, but uh, oftentimes I've, you know, seen it uh, before the price has been adjusted. Uh, and, you know, I've seen it work both ways. You you really think you've got an advantage, and, and it, I mean, it doesn't always turn out. Yeah, but, of course. Uh, I, I remember... I think it was the uh, the LA Open or the the Genesis Open um, last year. They really had some weather there last year, and uh, I think it worked out nearly a hundred percent of playing guys that were you know in the in the morning on Thursday and in the afternoon on Friday or something like that. I can't remember, but uh, the rain uh, it, it was very distinct as far as you know in, in comparison to the draw, the morning and the afternoon tea times the weather was like just fine for these guys and just horrific for these guys. And it, it worked out nearly a hundred percent. I believe in all the matchups we played that particular week. The Betfair exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's play the game within the game at betfair.com.au gamble responsibly. So let's talk about an individual player now. How much do you value recent form or current form, let's say, versus sort of their season-long performance or even annual performance? Do you uh, weight those depending on the player? Or, you know, obviously someone like Phil Mickelson, for example, might play very well at the Masters every year and be terrible leading up and you can discard it. But sort of in general, when you're looking at a player's uh, recent form, for example, versus season-long? Well, when they're when they're in really good recent form, a lot of times it's factored into the price and sometimes you can find value uh, on the underdog per se in a matchup like that. Uh, But yeah, you have to take into account um, guys that are going well. It's a little bit different like in uh, let's say the NFL where you get a team that's on a three or four game winning streak. And let's say, uh, you know, the, the New York jets and they just on that, you know, third or fourth game of the winning streak, they just upset the Patriots, you know, they had big upset or whatever. And, you know, the common NFL handicap is going into the following week. You would expect them to come back down to earth a little bit and, and let down a little bit after, you know, knocking off uh, Goliath, like the Patriots in golf, it seems to be not exactly the same. If you get a guy that uh, is really rolling along and let's say wins a big tournament, oftentimes they do not let down the following week. They they continue that momentum and and playing well. So it's tough to figure out sometimes whether you want to go against a guy that's having, you know, success, or if you want to continue to ride that streak. 
Um, I think it just comes down to the individual player. Oftentimes, if you get a, a first time winner on tour, you know, it's their very first victory. Uh, and they've got stars in their eyes after they win this prize. Yeah. Oftentimes, those guys do come back down to earth uh, the next week. But, you know, I think generally when you're dealing with the veterans, you know, um, or, or the top players in the world, if they're going along well, they tend to continue to do that. Um, so, yeah, you have to take that into consideration. I do think it's figured into the price as well. And then, you know, a lot of times there's value, like you say, Jake, on the guys that are just kind of cruising along and doing well over the course of a season, not, not necessarily, you know, on fire over the last two or three weeks, but just steady, uh, like Zach Johnson this week, you know, he hadn't missed a cut since last August and I, and he's done well in match play. And I thought, you know, here's a guy that's uh, basically the, the biggest underdog on the board to win this match play tournament. And the guy's been doing just fine, uh, under the radar, albeit, but he's had a lot of top 20 finishes, hasn't missed a cut in a long, long time has done well at match play. So sometimes there's guys that are playing consistent over the course of time that you can find value on as well. So how highly would you value past performance at a specific course, for example? And I know you probably need to balance it with, I guess, luck and randomness. If it's just, let's say, their first time and they win an event and they've got four rounds essentially on the record or 72 holes total, do you value that highly or does it need to fit in with your, like you mentioned before, you would pick the characteristics of the course and the player and see if they match? Yeah, yeah, they they have to match, certainly. You know, I mean, you can sometimes have an anomaly like uh, Gary Woodland winning at the Valspar Championship. You know, the Valspar is typically won by a, a ball striker and a plotter and, a, you know, the guy that can work the ball around corners and not not a bomber. And Gary Woodland is a bomber. So that, that one was, uh, you know, a little bit of an anomaly uh, that particular year. Um, but, you know, like Henrik Stenson at Bay Hill has just been a, a warrior out there at that course. He just seems to do well every single year, year in and year out. And, you know, he, he did again this year. So uh, he, he just seems to be a, a no-brainer for that tournament year in and year out. Um you know, I used to play in some like fantasy golf things where you'd have to pick a winner for each tournament uh, before the season started. And, and you mentioned Mickelson of Augusta. You know, he he was he he was the guy he always slotted in for the Masters because he had more top tens there than who than God knows who else. You know, and uh, so I mean, there certainly are horses for courses. You know, Stenson at Bay Hill, Mickelson at the Masters. Um, Jim Furyk used to be uh, exceptionally good at uh, you know some of the old Buick. Uh, tournaments that they had and uh, I mean there were guys that uh, you know were just like clockwork uh, that you could just plug into certain tournaments for sure. So golf handicapping seems to be largely situational in many respects but also nowadays you see the analytical side of other sports and I guess from your perspective can you dig deep into the numbers and the the putting metrics the greens in regulation metrics and and utilize, like you mentioned before, your spreadsheets and these type of things to create sort of player characteristics, or do you still need to know and understand the players, where they're from, where they went to college, what the weather and the courses are like, uh, where they grew up? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Jake. And and I really believe my school of thought is I, I think you have to take into account all of that. Um, that can be a lot of information to scour through, uh, but sometimes you can find some little gems in there that, that make a lot of sense. Uh, Thomas Peters, for instance, uh, winning 
the amateur championship at uh, Riviera Country Club. So a lot of people didn't know that he was familiar with that course, and it was last year at the Genesis. I think he finished second or fourth or something like that because uh, he had had some history there from his college days at Illinois. Uh, now, some people will just purely look at the numbers, and, and I have some friends in the business that don't pay attention to a whole lot else and just strictly go with the numbers and are very successful at it. I kind of fall in the middle, I guess, of uh, the generation gap where half of me is into the, the new numbers and the analytics and that side of things, and, and the older half of me is into the, the old school uh, handicapping of uh, digging up information and, like you say, you know, where they're from, where they grew up. Uh, the guys from South Africa grew up with Kukuyu grass and the guys from California grew up with Poana and Florida, Bermuda and, you know, where they went to college and are they experienced in match play? Uh, so I think I'm kind of fortunate where I'm a student of both the old and the new regime, if you will. So Brady, betting on a golf tournament, how far in advance do you start thinking about a, a betting plan or an approach when something like a major? Are you thinking months in advance and maybe placing a few futures bets and, and knowing what's coming up, you can sort of predict uh, how the market might swing? Or are you looking at it two or three days uh, in advance of the first round and, and strictly betting sort of closer to post time, let's call it? Well, certainly the Masters, and probably more so than any tournament, uh, you know, on the entire schedule in the entire world, uh, the Masters I start thinking about uh, way in advance because it's the same course every year. Um, the characteristics and what is needed to do well at the course don't change much. They have changed from kind of the pre-Tiger Masters to the post-Tiger Masters. You know, they, they Tiger-proofed the course and uh, different uh, factors have come into play. Obviously, it's a longer course, but you know it really used to just be one way, and now it's one way plus a, a few other ways. Um, but because not much has changed over the years and they play the same venue year in and year out, the Masters is certainly a tournament that I'll start thinking about. I remember I made my first future play uh, for this year's Masters last September. So the Masters is always one um, that is uh, at the forefront of your mind uh, a long way in advance. As far as the, the other tournaments week to week, um, yes, they play oftentimes at the very same venue, and I know what characteristics it's going to take, but you kind of have to uh, just take what the market is going to give you, and it's hard to think in advance. I mean, you know, is Dustin Johnson going to win the LA Open again? Is Dustin Johnson going to win at Pebble Beach again? You know, there's there's these guys that do well, Henrik Stenson at Bay Hill, we talked about, you know, but thinking that far in advance uh, for a tournament like that, I think uh, is different than the Masters because you, you don't know what these guys are going to be like going in. You don't know uh, how they're going to be playing. Uh, you don't know uh, if they're even going to show up at the tournament this year. Um, so as far as the, the regular tour events, I, I pretty much just go week to week. I might start thinking about something on a Sunday as they're finishing up with one tournament and heading into the ne next week. Uh, I'll start thinking about some things and then I really start uh, diving into it on Monday. Um, and then, you know, as far as the other majors, um, you know, the, the British Open is one that you can look at a little bit because you are familiar with, you know, typically a course that is in the Rota. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, it's really just the Masters that I think you can really start looking at well in advance. 
So there's sort of certain principles in sports betting that usually work well across different sports, and one of them is betting futures, uh, given the market percentage in those markets are often heavily tilted towards the bookmakers. Is golf a little bit different just because of the way it's sort of constructed with so many players? Uh, and I guess the, the favorite sometimes can be 8, 9, 10, 11 to 1. Is it something that can be profitable just because of the way golf is set up? And if you're betting well in advance on, even if it's you know four or five tournaments a year, you can still find those outliers in those markets and bet accordingly? Yeah, Jake, it, it kind of depends on where you're shopping, you know, from store to store. You, you're right. There are certain books that are very shaded towards the house and you're just never really able to get a good number. And then there's others that have what appear to be very fair odds. And, and you know, uh, if you're handicapping a football game, you might say, OK, I think New England should be favored by three points. And, and if you're talking about golf, uh, where we are right now, you might say the true odds on Tiger are 20 to 25 to one to win the Masters. And and my book has them at 10 to one. So obviously in, in your mind, that's not good value. But I do believe, you know, probably like with anything, Jake, the further you are out in front of it, the more likely you are to get good value. And and obviously that's difficult because you have to be a, a little bit predictive and have a little bit of a crystal ball, if you will. And I mean, you could have gotten Paul Casey at 40 or 50 to one to win the Masters. And then he wins the Valspar and now he's 20 or 25 to one. So Obviously, if you if you have that crystal ball and and and, and you didn't need a an incredible crystal ball with Casey, he's done well at the Masters year in and year out the past four or five years. So he's been very successful there. So if you wanted to take a shot at him prior to that win, uh, you obviously got a better number. And I and I've done that before too, where I might uh, you know see a guy that is on heading into Saturday and getting out in front of the field by three or four shots. And I'll say, okay, this guy's going to win this tournament. I'm going to bet him now to win the U.S. Open because after he wins this week, his odds are going to plummet. Yeah. So I, yeah. I've done that before too. Um, but, you know, I think the general rule is uh, two things. You know, if you see value at one store where he's trading at 80 to 1 and, and every other store's got him at 50 to 1, then, you know, you jump on that 80. Or, again, the other thing is, the further out in advance you, you can um, you can see something happening, uh, the better off you are typically. Now, you know, I, I, I bet uh, Daniel Berger at what I thought was a good number to win the Masters at 75 to 1, and now he's kind of gone the other way, and he's as high as 125 to 1. So, you know, sometimes it comes back to you to bite you the other way too. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you approach just day-to-day or week-to-week betting on – Golf events, and I guess, like I mentioned, you know, you can have an eight to one favorite. That's relatively normal uh, when you're talking about golf. Do you have to spread out your bets over two, three, four players, or are you thinking about seven to ten different bets? Because um, obviously, if it's a forty to one chance, it could lose thirty-five times in a row, and that wouldn't be sort of unusual from a betting perspective. So, how do you attack a, a golf tournament before it starts? Well. Honestly, Jake, I, I don't bet a ton of futures, and, and I'll just do the futures very recreationally. Now, I'll I'll get involved m- more seriously and, and with more of a strategy for the for the four majors. But week to week, I really don't get involved in too many future plays. Um, it's just such a long shot, and, and like I mean, it's almost like betting parlays. You know, yeah. if you hit one out of but, you know, you, you still got to hit that one out of every six or seven. Um, I think it's 
easier. Uh, you certainly see, I think, more consistent results anyway, uh, betting the head-to-head matchups. So, so that's what I do week in and week out. And, you know, all of the research that I do and all of the articles that I write, you know, I do come up with a few guys that I think can win the golf tournament. And I will kind of spread out a few pennies uh, across those guys just for fun, more or less. And, and I've hit a few, certainly. But again, I, I get more serious about uh, playing the futures with the majors. And I do take an approach where um, I'll, I'll do a certain percentage of a unit and, and a small percentage. And it'll be correlated to that player's odds you know the higher the odds the less money i'll risk uh, the lower the odds the more money i i might put on them but uh, you know whereas on a matchup if i'm betting a unit or even a half a unit or a unit and a half uh, a future bet i might be betting five or ten percent of a unit so i i and it's the same way i would treat a parlay in a football game you know i i, I call them lottery tickets you know I, I might fill out a parlay ticket for 5 bucks and hope i hit the lottery but my real bet might be on a single game and i think it's the same with golf uh, uh, as far as the argument of betting futures versus head to head matchups yeah and i want to talk about head to head in a second one last question on the futures side there's a particular golfer called Eldrick Woods who during his peak time, and maybe he's coming back to some uh, form now, but back in his peak, he was, you know, two, three, four to one for some of these tournaments. Was the futures betting much different back then when uh, when Tiger was playing because of the, the rest of the field might have had, potentially there might have been more value throughout it because it was so shaded towards the, the public and average bettors? Yeah, you know... That that goes a ways back before I was paying attention to it so closely. And I remember Tiger was, you know, I mean, if you saw Tiger at two to one to win a major, that was that was a good price. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he was, it's amazing. He was for for the most part even money or 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 even minus money, you know, uh, to win these things. And he won them so regularly. I mean, his percentage on winning not only majors but golf tournaments w- was unprecedented. So you know, the odds maker had to. I mean, you never saw Tiger at ten to one. Uh, he, he, like I say, even money two to one. Um, but yeah, you know, that of course would say that there's value in the rest of the field, but Tiger won so often, you know, you have to pick your spots. When are you going to hit that other guy that wins and who's that other guy going to be? Um, it might be easier now where you have 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 guys that can win every week. And you've got better numbers. Yeah. Okay. One thing that I know that's been one thing that I know that's been created for sure uh, recently is you know all this uh, love for Tiger uh, in the recent events, the Honda Classic, the Valspar, the Bay Hill, the Masters, with his odds plummeting by the hour, it seems by the shot, if you will. Uh, there is certainly being value created on the other guys, and, and it's different because you know in year two thousand. Tiger was clearly the favorite. He was dominant, and you just didn't know if the other guys were going to win. Tiger no longer currently is that dominant, and there's 30 or 40 or 50 other guys that are just as good, if not a lot better than him. So while Tiger's odds continue to go down, the odds on guys like Justin Rose and Phil Mickelson and Paul Casey continue to rise, and I think that's where you're able to get some value these days, uh, you know, while everybody's focused in on Tiger, take a look at these other guys and while their numbers are going up. So let's talk about head-to-head betting. 
obviously, you know, in generally in sporting events, you have two teams or players against each other. Golf's a little bit different in that, you know, the odds maker and the bookmakers create the head-to-head matchups, and they may be in the same grouping or pairing, but quite often, unless it's match play, they're going to be trying to win the tournament, I suppose, rather than beat their, I guess, opponent in that group. So what are some of the factors that are important to consider when talking about betting head-to-head golf matchups? Yeah, you know, what I like about it, Jake, is, you know, different from the futures market where you're trying to basically just look at value and and pick, you know, a needle in a haystack, really, one guy to win the golf tournament out of 150. A head-to-head matchup, as you say, it is like betting, you know, the Patriots against the Steelers and and you're going to handicap that team and what they're good at uh, and and where they may be able to expose the other team's weaknesses and whatnot. Very similar with a a golf head to head matchup. You're going to look at that player and how you figure he's going to do at this course, this particular week versus that other player and what he may or may not do and their strengths and weaknesses. So I think it's, it's more crunchable, if you will, you know, there, there's more, data that you can sink your teeth into uh, on player A versus player B than trying to, again, pick one player out of a field that's going to beat everybody else. Uh, a more concrete handicap, I guess, if it would be the way to say it. And what, how has the betting markets for golf evolved, I guess, over the last sort of five or six years, maybe? Is there a lot more prop betting popping up, like, you know, total amount of putts or greens in regulations hit or things like that, or is it still pretty standard betting markets that you'll find? I I think I'm seeing pretty much the standard stuff, but what I am seeing is those props being offered more regularly and and for more uh, smaller tournaments, uh, not just the majors. You know, the majors always have the props that go along with them, but I'm starting to see the props pop up uh, on week to week events as well. And I think it just is, uh, you know, a credit to the the rise in golf betting and the popularity of golf betting and and the odds makers are offering offering more opportunities and more ways to bet it. And again, uh, on a more weekly basis uh, than, than what they were doing in the past. And really, you know, you can, you can say that golf betting has become more popular, certainly, but it's also the tiger effect. He's bringing more people to the window. He's bringing more people to their TV set. And, uh, you know, all of that just creates opportunities for the better and the bookmaker. And, and it's all good. It makes it all fun. Yeah, absolutely. So this might be a weird question, but in terms of winning a golf tournament, what role does luck play? Or I guess randomness, is it something that is a big impact? And you've obviously lived and breathed golf your, your whole life you've played a lot you've watched these tournaments watched these players know them in detail is luck a critical factor in all this yeah i think you know i think that's probably true in any sport you you can handicap uh you know your rear end off but uh, at the end of the day there's going to be a little bit of luck involved and you know we're human beings and uh so there there's certainly some of that as well i mean last week uh or, or i guess it was, yeah last week at bay hill uh, I had Justin Rose to win the golf tournament, and I thought he looked like uh, a real good bet to to come through on Sunday. And then all of a sudden, Rory McIlroy goes nuts, and he's eight under par through his final 13 holes, and he's pulling every putt he looks at. I mean that that doesn't happen all the time. And you know, then he goes into this week and and doesn't maintain that level of play, which I, I didn't think he would. And you know, he's out before the the knockout stage of the match play. So yeah, random things happen. Uh, 
like I say, in any sport, uh, Fred Couples' ball hanging on the edge of the the grass there at 12 at Augusta, and he goes on to win that tournament. So, you know, you you do your best. It's kind of like Tiger says, you know, if you execute the shot uh, that you wanted to hit, uh, where it lands is not up to you. You know, you did your part. Where the, you know, what what if it hits a sprinkler head? (laughs) You know, there's there's weird stuff that happens, but uh, all you can do is, you know, I mean, if you if you have handicapped Alex Noren to win the match play or whatever, well, so far you're doing pretty well, but uh, eventually it's going to probably be left up to the golf gods as well. So in your opinion or in your experience, how efficient do you think the golf markets are and even the head-to-heads or the, the futures, all that type of stuff? Is it, I mean, let's talk on a scale of, NFL being incredibly efficient and there's betting going on around the world and those numbers are pretty sharp. Is golf at that end of the scale or is it much more at the other end of the scale and it's not a necessarily a saturated or mature market yet and it'll take some time before it gets anywhere near the likes of NFL matches and NBA matches? Yeah, I think the latter part of your question there is definitely true. The golf market, um, it's getting better, but uh, there are certainly holes uh, in the golf betting market, and especially opposed to the NFL, which is extremely efficient and tight. Um, and, and you know, there are the golf markets are random too. There, are, there are certainly some stores that are much sharper than others, and and other stores that can be taken advantage of. Um, and I don't think there's, you know, there's not a lot of golf betters out there that are really moving markets either. There are a few. And uh, you'll see those odds move fast and, and in, in big quantity. Um, but if you can get to them on time, uh, I think the golf market is much more vulnerable than, say, an NFL market or an NBA. Uh, yeah, it, it has a ways to go because, again, like we talk about, you know, golf betting is just becoming more and more popular. And I mean, even five years ago, it seems like nobody was betting golf, you know, and you know, a few people there, a few professionals and, you know, making a, a wager on who's going to win the Masters. But it, it has really come a long way since then. I mean, you and I are sitting here talking about it, you know, and that, that didn't happen five years ago. So uh, they're becoming more efficient, but I still believe they are vulnerable, uh, especially store to store. With that, then, let's talk about helping, I guess, people that would play golf on the weekends who enjoy watching some golf, who probably grew up watching Tiger and, and may be interested in betting helping those type of people who might be more focused on other sports, what are some of the, I guess, key statistics that they can look at to get a a bit of an insight? Let's say they're the five-minute handicapper. Would you suggest they look at, you know, greens in regulation, putting, uh, distance of drives, that type of stuff? Or what should they focus on if they've got a limited amount of time to try and improve from a 48 49% winning golf better to maybe get to 51%? Yeah, that's that's a great question, Jake. And, and I would, you know, like you say, if you have limited time and you're thinking about, you know, playing uh, next week's Houston Open or something like that, probably the first thing I would do is uh, go back and just look at who uh, has done well at the Houston Open over the last five years. And you say, geez, this guy so and so is uh, has finished in the top twenty, you know, four out of the last five years. Uh, you know, and let's see what he's done the last couple of weeks. What, what's his current form? How's he, oh, geez. Okay. He's doing well, boy, that guy looks pretty good. Maybe I'll, I'll bet him in a matchup. Maybe I'll take a shot on a future, but I would probably first and foremost, look at course form and current form. And that kind of gives you probably your, your, your 
foundation, if you will, uh, idea of this guy or, or these handful of players and how they do uh, at this course and how they're, how they're playing currently. And then if you've got a few more minutes, you might dive into some stats and see, well, how are they putting this year? Greens and regulation is probably the most indicative statistic uh, of, of winning on the PGA Tour over any. I don't think there's a single golf tournament out there that you, don't, that you can't include greens and regulation in. So uh, maybe you dive in uh, to the stats a little bit. Uh, you know, how's he putting? How's he doing? How, how's, how's his accuracy off the tee? And, you know, kind of throw that all into a basket and see what you come up with. But that would probably be a, a superficial look that I would recommend. So in line with that, is there a most overrated factor that an average golf fan uses or, or thinks valuable? And I don't have one necessarily off the top of my head. Maybe that they a player missed the cut last week at a tournament, and therefore this week they're more likely to miss the cut than they, they should be. Is there anything that stands out that falls within the, the public narrative when you know the average better is thinking about placing a 5 10 or a $20 bet that you could sort of say, look, this is probably not uh, the best indicator? Yeah, that, that's a really good question, and and it's hard to think of something. You know, I, I was speaking earlier uh, in the podcast here about, um, you know, in an NFL game, oftentimes you can you can fade a team the week after they've done something uh, really excellent, something maybe you know above their heads, and you you expect them to kind of fall back a little bit. And uh, you know, in golf betting, you might see uh, you know uh, Patton Kazire. Uh, win a win a golf tournament, and you expect he's going to you know come back down to earth the next week, and it, it doesn't always happen. He often goes out and wins again. So sometimes things that uh, you expect traditional handicapping method methods don't seem to always be true in golf. You know, I, I would just say, like in any sport, really, just be careful of the price on the on the favorites. Uh, you know, you're paying a, a premium for guys like like Tiger Woods and Dustin Johnson, and you know, if, I mean. If you look at the Masters and, and how good these players are today, I, I really don't think anybody should be favored uh, or, or have odds of less than 10 to 1 to win that tournament because it's that wide open. And, and so I think it might be a little bit of a, a mistake uh, for a recreational better to just go out there and, and blindly bet Tiger at 6 to 1 or whatever because that's not really good value. So it, it's a tough question to answer, Jake. Uh, I, I don't know if they're – are red flags that come up uh, off the top of my head, but uh, maybe I've given you a little bit of insight there anyway. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk price. Unlike bookies and totes, the Betfair Exchange is a low-margin, buy-sell, fixed-odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter, not the house. Ready for the game within the game? Join betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. What type of golf content do you listen to, read, consume? How do you get all your information? What are some of the best spots you can uh, can push people towards to to get more information? Yeah, um, I you know I write a column uh, that comes out uh, every Wednesday, so I certainly encourage people to to find those. Uh, you can find it on uh, covers dot com and uh, sportsbookreview.com. I also write a piece for uh, Point Spread Weekly. Uh, which is a subscription publica- uh, publication for the the radio network Veasan. That's the Vegas Stats and Information Network. Uh, and then I also really respect uh, the guys that work at Betfair, which is uh, over uh, in the UK. Uh, Steve Rawlings and Dave Tyndall and um, 
there's another couple of writers over there that their names uh, are escaping me. Um, uh, there's a, there's a podcast, uh, gosh, I can't remember that. I want to say it's like Dave Kendall. Um, but there's some guys that he, he's with William Hill, I believe in the UK. Uh, but there's some guys that do some stuff overseas, uh, that are tremendous. Uh, they really write some great stuff and they have, uh, very good information from a betting angle. It's not necessarily just a, just a preview of the golf tournament, but they'll, they'll relate it to betting as well. So I, I look at what all those guys have to say and kind of, you know, take my own information as well and, you know, let that sink in and, and go from there. Yeah. Bedfair they're, uh, supporters of this podcast as well. And there's a lot of great content coming from Europe and the UK, especially. So absolutely. I, I do listen to some of those admittedly, probably only before the, the U S open and St. Andrews and, and obviously Augusta, but um, yeah, there's some great, there's some great shows out there. So I, I guess before I let you go, I must ask that with the masters coming up and we're recording, I guess just over a week out, uh, what are some of your predictions and not necessarily who's going to win? Cause as we've sort of discussed, it's, not that simple to find an outright winner, but are you thinking that it'll be pretty tight at the top? It'll be high scoring, low scoring. Do you expect some of the, the young guns to, to pop up? What are, what are some of your expectations coming into the masters about a week out? Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite topics to talk about, and, and I have to go back. I remembered it's Dave Kellner, uh, in the answer to your last question, Dave Kellner, uh, does a podcast. He's with William Hill, uh, UK. And then of course, Dave Tyndall and Steve Rawlings, those guys are all excellent. They do a lot of work together, but, uh, really good information. And, uh, I've spoken with Dave Tyndall a number of times and Kellner, uh, really good guys as well. Uh, but, uh, as far as the masters, you know, it seems like I'm saying this all the time, but I think it may be more so true this year than I can recall in, in recent past. And that is uh, the fact that I think this year, I mean, if you're ever going to go to the event or if you're ever going to watch it for the first time or whatever, this could be the most amazing year in a while. I think the golfers that we have uh, in the game right now are so unbelievable. And now you've got Tiger in the mix as well. And Tiger certainly appears to be uh, somebody that will contend. Uh, again, I mentioned his odds to win it are probably – his true odds are probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 to one, but you know, that's, that's not too much of a long shot. <laughs> I, I would expect uh, him to be in the mix. He knows this course awful well, obviously, and he's playing very well. So I think it's going to be great theater to watch tiger. And then, you know, besides tiger, there's a, a, about another 20 guys that are absolutely incredible named Jordan Spieth, Justin Rose, Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy, Jason Day. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Uh, and it just should be absolutely incredible. I think to watch Augusta this year, as far as low scores and high scores, you know, I haven't looked out at the forecast just yet for what kind of weather we're going to have. Last year, we had uh, a ton of wind, on the first two days. And, and that really wreaked some havoc on some guys. Um, you know, I think if the weather's decent, we could probably see some low scores because I just think players are that good right now. I mean, look at Justin Thomas. He is just destroying golf courses. So it ought to be exciting uh, no matter what the scores are, because I think you're going to have just a star studded leaderboard. Uh, and if the weather uh, is calm, uh, I think you're going to have guys going pretty low. So there's a lot of Aussie listeners to this and they'll know Adam Scott, they'll know Jason Day and co. Are there any others from sort of the Australian contingent that you can sort of give a little bit of a thumbs up to? I don't know, Mark Leishman, some of these other guys that aren't necessarily as well known? 
Well, uh, I tell you, Cameron Smith is pretty awesome. Uh, he's uh, fared quite well uh, in the match play this week, and I really like that young kid. Um, but uh, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Jake, that uh, I made my first uh, Masters future back in September of 2017, and that was actually on Mark Leishman, and I was able to get him at 80 to 1. And uh, he's uh, much lower now at about 40 to 1 or maybe even some 60s still out there. But uh, he has come down a lot. And I, and I made that play on Leishman. He had won at Bay Hill last year. Uh, so, you know, that, that was good to, to win a tour event and get that confidence. Uh, he played in the President's Cup as well this year. And a lot of times that international President's Cup, that will be one of the building blocks uh, to get that you have to get through uh, before you get a major championship. And also when he won the BMW uh, last year in September uh, as a part of the FedEx playoff series, he held off some of the best players in the world. And to see him do that, he won that tournament wire to wire. And to see him do that, that gave me the confidence that this guy has the potential to, to go on and win a major. He's come that close uh, at the British Open. He's been close at Augusta before. Uh, I think he's knocking on the door, and I felt 80 to 1 was a pretty good price. I also like Adam Scott. Um, this guy has quiet, quietly been playing very good golf this year, statistically. Uh, he's had some decent finishes, but statistically, he is very much in the mix. So um, there's a couple of uh, uh, backings that I'm going to be doing as far as the Australians. Brady, I really appreciate your time. I'm sure uh, a few listeners will be cheering on Mark and Adam and a few other Aussies as well. So uh, certainly there's some you know, aligned thoughts and, and feelings there. So good luck with all your bets in the match play, in the, in the Masters. It's a good time of year to be a golf fan and having a few bets. So I, I really appreciate your insights uh, for the podcast. Yeah, absolutely, Jake. It was great talking to you. And please feel free to holler at me anytime because uh, I enjoy talking about this stuff. Awesome. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and please support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Gamble responsibly.